Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Superano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Bobby Weed. And Bobby is the second straight architect we brought on to the Tartan Talks podcast to describe what it was like working with Pete Dye and what Pete Dye meant to his career. Last month, Brian Curley came onto the podcast and discussed his own experiences working alongside Pete Dye. Bobby's experiences are a bit different than Brian's. We thought it would be great to get a different perspective. Bobby worked alongside Pete in the Southeast, most notably at Long Cove Club, that gem of a private club on Hilton Head Island. The story of designing and building Long Cove is an awesome one, and Bobby is going to get into that in this podcast, and Bobby's also going to describe what Pete Dye meant to his career. But before we get going with Bobby, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad to have them on board, and we're glad that we're able to speak with Bobby for the first time. Well, Bobby, thanks for joining the Tartan Talks podcast. We're recording this at the Golf Industry Show, and we're outdoors in Orlando, and it's absolutely beautiful out. So thanks for taking the time. And wow, we're going to be talking about Pete Dye, and I'm sure you have so many memories. But the, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, when did you first meet him? What were your initial impressions? And what did you know about him when you met him? I first met Pete in the mid-'70s at Amelia Island Plantation, which is in northeast Florida. And uh, Amelia Island Plantation was developed by Sea Pines Company, um, which had just finished Harbortown in Hilton Head. So um, the, the golf course at Amelia Island was like nothing I'd ever seen. Uh, small greens, um, use of bulkheads, uh, just artistry on on the land. I mean, it was just, it was wonderful. It was so, it was so refreshing to see um, such a, such a departure um, from, from the penal school of golf, uh, much more interesting golf. So um, it was in the mid seventies. I was interning uh, up at the plantation and um, he was there for a follow-up visit. And that's where I first met him. What was his place in the game like during the mid seventies? A little bit different than it was you know, as we progressed into the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, how would you describe his place in golf at that time? Well, he was certainly um, certainly up and coming um, because of Harbortown. Um, uh, he told me that um, driving down 278, which was the main road through Hilton Head, driving by Palmetto Dunes every day, seeing Robert Trent Jones's golf course uh, over to the side with runway length tees, Penal bunkers left and right of the fairway, penal bunkers left and right of the greens, and the greens were big and just a big spacious golf course, and and that was um, uh, that was somewhat of the standard back then uh, from the from the uh, from the 60s. Of course, Trent Jones was you know one of the most noted architects of the modern era, and Pete certainly respected Mr. Jones um, tremendously, but he wanted to go in a different direction, and um, as a result. Harbortown uh, was a product of that. Uh, really small greens, um, really interesting, intricate routing, um, use of uh, a lot of different materials, uh, big sandy uh, native areas, uh, and some really unique strategy. You know, Pete was always noted for building wonderful, elegant par threes, 
and, um, and did so at, um, at Harbortown. So he was on the map. He was certainly up and coming, and I uh, had already done um, uh, a cricket stick and the golf club, I had teamed up with Jack Nicholas. And of course, Jack was in his heyday at that time. So there was a lot of momentum moving forward. So uh, he had he was certainly getting getting entrenched into the game and making a name for himself. It was uh, it was an exciting time. And how did your relationship with him develop? You're young at the time when you first met him. How, how did you end up getting more work with with him? You know what, Pete was a very hard worker, and um, I come from a family background where my father and my grandparents were, were hard workers and I had a very good work ethic and um, uh, I noticed that early on with Pete um, he would be up at sunup and he could be out there until till till the sun went down I think uh, what drew me to Pete was um, was his unending work ethic and his desire um, and his enthusiasm building golf courses he was he was uh he liked anybody he liked anybody and everybody that uh number one worked hard um had an interest and passion for the game and um it was just being around him was very infectious and um and it just it just really drove you to new to new levels now we could probably spend days going course by course and talking about all the work that he did one of the more memorable projects from everything i've heard and read it was long cove club what do you remember about working on the site of the building of that golf course, and there were a lot of talented people that came from that project. You know, it really was. Uh, I think every golf course, every great golf course starts with great ownership, and we certainly had that direction with uh, Joe Webster, uh, the managing director there, David Ames, which which, uh, was the land planner, and um, uh, Wes Wilhelm. I will say David Ames did the land plan. It may be one of the great land plans uh, in the entire country. Um, I mean, to to go study the land plan that David Ames put together there uh, that incorporated residential uh, and the golf course. I think every lot, I think it was like, I think the property was 600 acres. Uh, I believe there were approximately 600 lots. And I think every lot had a view of either the golf course, the marsh, a lagoon, or open space. Um, And you can see that today. Um, it was just remarkable. There was a previously routed golf course uh, by Frank Duane and Arnold Palmer, actually, and uh, it it uh, it did not it, it did not go through, and uh, it was stopped midway. There were some golf holes with corridors that had been cleared. Pete rerouted it and took the golf course out to the marsh and creating, created some wonderful marsh holes. Um, so uh, the golf course is routed, and, 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 and it's wonderful because it, it, really, it really progresses through the, um, through the lush maritime vegetation and out to the marsh. And um, um, so it was, a, it was a wonderful routed golf course to begin with. So between the routing and, uh, and working with great ownership, the, the crew that we assembled um, was, was really uh, diverse, but the bond was everybody was passionate about golf. Everybody played golf. We probably had 
we probably had half a dozen, maybe 10 guys that were, were really good players. Um, some, uh, many of them were single-digit handicappers. I would bring in a lot of interns from uh, Lake City um, Community College, a turf school down in, um, um, in, in North Florida. I'd bring those guys in up there by the carloads every week. And, um, and you know what? We just we worked hard, and we enjoyed it. We had fun. And as it turned out, it may be one of the best, most talented crews ever assembled on a golf course. Yeah, for our listeners that aren't familiar, who were some of the people beside yourself that went on to have awesome golf course architecture careers that were involved in that project? Well, certainly um, uh, PB, Pete's son, PB Dye, uh, myself, along with um, Ron Ferris, um, Scott Poole, uh, Tom Doak, um, and a few others I'm probably missing. Um, David, David Savick worked with us, um, uh, along with a couple other guys. Uh, it'd take me a little while to reflect back on, on, on all the guys, but, um, and then all the interns that worked for us. Um, um, and it was just a, it was a great time. And, um, we had, we had the Hollings brothers out of Indianapolis that grew up with PB, um, uh, that were working there during the summer. Um, Danny Westinger from uh, uh, from South Carolina. Uh, everybody had nicknames. It seemed like, and um, it, it was just a it was just a wonderful wonderful time for all of us. Yeah, what does it say about Pete that, that those type of eager, talented young people wanted to work for him and sacrifice a lot for a particular project? A lot, because not a single one of us could run a single piece of equipment. We had, we didn't know. I mean, we couldn't run a straight blade with a dozer for anything. And um, so we were all kind of learning, and, um, and Pete was absolutely fine with that. Pete was fine with that. And, um, and, and we were, not a single one of us could be termed an operator. Um, we basically learned our trade by being out there from sun up to sundown. And um, I mean, it was so hot and so sandy and dusty, and we'd have sunscreen on, and the noceums and the mosquitoes were caked on us. And I mean, every day we'd 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 get in a big excavator and and get lifted up in the air 20, 25 feet and jump off into a lagoon. And that was a that was probably the best way we could get cleaned off for the afternoon at the end of the day. But we had fun doing it. We we had fun doing it, and we knew that we were something, we were part of something special because Pete was right there with us. He was right there with us working and kind of shaping and molding us and uh, whatever he said, we would absolutely do. Yeah, I mean, when you're a working for a boss that's in the dirt with you, what type of motivation factor is that? I mean, and from what I understand, Pete was like that even until the end of his career, he was out in the dirt working with people. Pete said one time, you show me a golf course built by a set of plans, I'll show you a bad golf course. Um, Pete was, uh, was a guy that would get down and shape and mold and give you an idea of something in the dirt. He'd kind of draw it out in the dirt. And then, um, you know, we would uh, we'd basically do our drawing with a bulldozer and an excavator. Like I said, we, none of us were very good operators. We were there from, you know, we were there all day. So uh, uh, it was, it was you, know, you could just tell it was an exciting time. And, um, you know, we were all you know, seeing the innovation of Pete and, uh, and, and, and the work ethic and the fact that he would just stay there and would never give up on a feature or a green complex until it was as good as it could be.
I think we always kind of snickered behind his back saying the day we had to grasp the golf hole was the worst day for Pete because he couldn't tinker with it anymore. And um, so that was always fun. I had some people I interviewed for our longer print story that said a golf course was never truly done in his mind. Is, is that true? Did he always see ways that things could be enhanced? I mean, obviously you have an owner and a budget and it has to end sometimes, but was this someone that was always thinking about making his own work better? No question. There was never a golf hole that he couldn't improve upon and, uh, and, and further challenge a golfer. Because once you saw the finished product and you saw how it played, the wheels were always turning, and how could it be better? What can, what, what can we do to make it better? Um, you know, Pete was, Pete was not, a, Pete was not uh, big on administrative work. I mean, uh, a budget to him, a budget to Pete consisted of three line items, equipment, labor, and materials. And when you think about it, those are the, really the only three line items that mean anything. Now, line items today in a budget consist of... 25 to 35 line items, you know, from top to bottom. Uh, you know, Pete could, Pete could sign a contract with a handshake. He didn't need a contract. His contract sometimes could be a handshake. It was just a, just a way he could do business. And, um, and, and the commitment that he had uh, was just um, was like nobody had ever seen before. You recently had a chance to go back to Long Cove to do some work. What type of memories were going through your mind uh, doing that recent work. Did you think about, about the original building of the course and the, the people you met? What goes through your mind when you get a chance to work again at a place that's so special to you? Yeah, no question. We built that golf course, I think, in 81. And, and frankly, um, there had been some, some tweaks here and there, but nothing, nothing along the lines of what we uh, accomplished last year. So, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And um, uh, most of the folks that were there in 81, very few of them are still around. Um, although the director of golf, Bob Patton, is still there, and he was there early on. Jim Faree and his wife, Karen Faree, were there early on. So um, um, there's been good continuity up there. But, uh, no, I, I, I would be remiss in saying uh, it was somewhat emotional for me and, and fun, brought back a lot of great fond memories uh, of being up there. But what I really like is the commitment from the club to restore the golf course. Um, and even if Pete would have been able to go up there, he would have, I'm sure would have made a lot of changes. What we decided to do was to restore an original Pete Dye golf course and maintain the origin originality, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, that was a decision that the club uh, wanted us to pursue, and frankly, um, we endorse that and, um, and really, uh, really appreciate the fact that um, we really have restored an original golf course pretty close to what we had initially built at Long Cove. Bobby, not just that project, but all the projects you do, does the thought, what would Pete do, what would Pete think of this, does that go, go through, your, through your mind still? Yeah, probably not a golf hole that I'm involved in that that uh, that I'm I'm working on. I'm rubbing on, and a lot of those traits that I'm that I inherited from Pete is um, just you know asking myself what else can I do before I sign off on this 
what else can I do? Because I operate pretty much the same way. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on the equipment. I'm shaping my complexes, my green complexes. And, um, um, and to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm as energetic and as passionate as I've ever been, maybe more so. I've been re-energized because I'm really back on the equipment. I'm living on the job sites. And uh, we just finished Grove 23 for Michael Jordan down in Hope Sound, Florida. And uh, I, I lived on site. Uh, I was living on site when we redid the Medalist Golf Club, also in Hope Sound. Uh, just finished one down in Boynton Beach at Quail Ridge. And, um, you know, living there and being, being on site every day, um, it, it allowed me to stay immersed from start to finish. And every single day I would be out there, I'd be asking myself, what could I do to improve this feature? And it's no different than what Pete was doing, I think, uh, his entire career. Is there a bond amongst you that worked with Pete or worked for Pete? Is there a bond amongst the, the whole network and tree of people, or is your business just so tough and so competitive that there, that kinship doesn't exist? No. I think with Pete, um, I think probably as great a legacy as Pete leaves with his golf courses and the mark he's made and all the major championships that have been held on those golf courses, um, everything that goes with with the great golf courses that he has left behind. I think maybe an even more enduring legacy may be all the people that has worked with that, that worked with him and um, uh, that that Pete Dye tree has far reaching tentacles and you know what we we all have a common bond. There's a common thread that weaves in between all, uh, amongst all of us that um, uh, is, is, is pretty special. And yes, there's a, there's a lot of disciples out there and um, you bet we, um, we all share a common bond and, uh, and there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of kindred relationship there that, um, uh, that carries on for sure. We're at the golf industry show. There are hundreds, if not thousands of superintendents here. What was Pete's relationship like with the, the golf course superintendent and how much did he think about golf course maintenance in his work? Pete liked to push the envelope. Um, he was an experimenter and an innovator, and um, he liked to create contrast on his golf courses, uh, and he would do that through different grasses. He was not afraid to experiment, and superintendents that would buy into that, um, um, it, it was just a wonderful experience. Um, uh, very seldom was uh, did, did he have somebody bucking him and, and not buying in to what he was trying to do because you didn't want to handcuff Pete. You wanted to give him all of the creative license and, um, and, and we all carry on that today. And I will tell you, his relationship to superintendents was very special, very special. Um, I'm, a, I'm a 41-year member, I think, of the GCSAA, and, um, and, and that was uh, much of my background early on. And I think that had a lot to do with Pete um, taking me under his wing because I had some construction experience and I had the maintenance and agronomic experience, and um, he, he really liked that. He really liked that because he really liked to push the envelope on steep slopes, on, um, on features, on getting, uh, uh, you know, I think he was a superintendent's best friend when it came to drainage because um, he always had a saying, if it doesn't drain, it doesn't work, and you can't grow grass, and every superintendent worth their salt knows that. 
drainage and irrigation are, are the absolute key infrastructural items of every golf course. Uh, and, and if it doesn't drain, it doesn't work, period. So uh, he, was, he was big on drainage. He was quite an innovator when it came to, to drainage and engineering of golf courses. He was a master in that respect. So um, superintendents quickly picked up on that and, um, and, uh, and certainly appreciated that. And uh, so he left a big, big mark with so many superintendents uh, and, uh, and instilled his work ethic onto them because being a superintendent, uh, it's, it's basically a seven-day-a-week job, and it's sometimes hard to get away from it. And um, uh, especially these superintendents that show up before the sun comes up and rolls the doors open, and, and a lot of times is the last one to leave the property and, uh, and, and, and lock everything up in the afternoon. Those are really long hours, and it takes a very special individual. You have to be very passionate to be in this business. And, and Pete was passionate and loved everybody that was associated um, with the game, that could play the game, um, but, but, but had that passion and work ethic towards the game. That, that was my next question. How much did he think about golf, and were there any interests outside of golf, or was it pretty much golf all the time when you were with him? No, I, I, mean, um, uh, I mean, early on, he, I mean, he was a fine amateur player. I think he even uh, was a part owner of a, of a race car that, uh, that ran at Indy. And um, so, uh, I mean, he was, um, he was, he was just an all around sport and great guy, but I will tell you, um, he would wake up thinking about golf and he would go to bed thinking about golf and everything in between. Even, even in the last years, he'd be glued to the TV, watching, watching the golf events and watching these players uh, work their way around the golf course. And uh, so, I mean, between he and Alice, um, they were, they were probably the most powerful, dynamic duo in the game. Um, and I would consider both of them national treasures in the, in the same vein as, um, as um, Sam Snead, uh, Gene Sarazen, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, all the guys that made their mark playing. He made his mark playing in the dirt. A few last things here. We can't forget about Alice in this whole thing. How instrumental was she in the, the Pete Dye story? And what were some stories you remember from your interactions with her? She was a she was a genius and in so many ways. And she was the brains of that team. Pete was the innovator. Pete was the creator. He was a visionary. But it was Alice who could keep him inside these curbs, so to speak. And while he would bounce off of these curves back and forth, Alice, Alice would always be there to critique. She was, she was a great critique of, um, uh, of, of his work and, and, a, and, a, and a critic on, on all of his projects. And it was, a great, it was great to see how they, how they teamed up and worked together and, and they both had such a great eye for the game because both of them were great amateur players. And um, she amassed a phenomenal record as an amateur female golfer. So um, she had so much knowledge, so much experience. And, you know, they would, just, they would just outthink everybody else. Pete was successful in the insurance business. That's not an easy business. What did you learn about salesmanship and dealing with with owners and boards from your interactions with Pete? Well, I think Pete could sell Ray Charles prescription sunglasses 
because uh, he he amassed quite a record um, while he was in the um, insurance business at an early age. And frankly, everybody thought he was crazy. Thought he may need some uh, may may need some um, uh, some doctors to maybe. Uh, uh, to, to work with him a little bit to see uh, what his problem was because he had such a great future in the insurance business, but he was going a different direction. He, he had it in his blood from his father growing up in Urbana, Ohio at an early age, uh, playing golf, maintaining the family golf course, and, uh, and, never, and never stopped uh, being, that, being that person that was, was the innovator and pushing, pushing the envelope uh, to, to the extreme. So... Um, uh, it, that 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 started with him at a very early age. Is it even remotely possible for another Pete Dye to come around in this current golf climate? Oh, I'd like to think so. I mean, records are all all created to be broken. But I would say for the modern for the modern era, um, you know, Pete probably had uh, as big an impact as anybody in the modern era of the game. That that mark. Uh, will will last for for generations, and the fact that you um, create and build these golf courses, uh, and and you know his 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 desire was to build these golf courses that would be challenging but fun and interesting, and and hopefully um, um, allow allow the game to have the next up and coming Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, Arnold Palmer. Um, Jason Spieth coming up on these golf courses that that they that, that Pete built and 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 provide provide the um, um, the avenue for the next generation to take it to another level and um, I, I, that's that's one thing that makes the game of golf so great is the mere fact that no one has ever mastered the game and no one is bigger or better than the game. We're only here for a short time, and um, you know Pete made a wonderful mark uh, here for half of 188 years. There's no better way to end the podcast. That's a great ending, uh, Bobby. Thanks for the time, and congratulations on everything you've accomplished in your career. Well, thanks. Appreciate it.